We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Ooh, Don Palumbo. Jonah Lanto. It is so amazing to be here. Outside of Minot for Where the first we? time ever at Fat Fish Brewing to an amazing crowd here tonight in so Dickinson, crazy. North this Dakota. Awesome. Thanks for having us, Dickinson. Thanks for having us, Fat Fish. This is so cool. Uh, happy to be here. So, thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast. We greatly appreciate it. The comments, the feedback, the support that we've received from our listeners just has, has been so fabulous. We, we really, truly appreciate it. And, you know, because we're living in this world of algorithms. They control our lives now. And so your reviews help Midwest Murder move up the charts and it does wonderful things for this little podcast of ours. So Jonah, what are people saying about Midwest Murder? A comment about the algorithms. When When robots were promised to take over, I really thought it would be they'd be bigger and there'd be more lasers, but it's actually just the algorithms and they are controlling all of it. They're they're controlling us and and it's not fun. So they certainly control the recognition that Midwest Murder is able to receive. And the best way that we can grow in the charts is by your support. And that is by rating and reviewing the show. So again, we really sincerely appreciate the time that the people who take the time to do that for us. This one's from Shan Sheldon. Five stars on March 11th. I really enjoy listening to both Don and Jonah. It's obvious they spend time researching and getting it right. It is nice they present the material without bias. I enjoy the banter the hosts share. They make difficult content informative and entertaining at the same time. I especially love hearing the tidbits of history for the era and surrounding area allows for a real connection and better places the listener into the framework of the story. Eagerly anticipating the next episode. That's from Nanton, Alberta, Canada. We appreciate you guys. Thanks, from, Shannon. From Mayor BV, can't stop listening. I normally only like the series that are focused on one crime for the whole season. Midwest Murder is the exception as they give deep detail and each episode is captivating. I feel satisfied after each episode, but still wanting more. And each next episode gives that. Phenomenal. So again, because of those weird algorithms that control our lives, your reviews help Midwest Murder move up in the charts and does wonderful things to help us grow. So and we thank you. We do. Yeah. We thank you so much. Yeah. We also want to give a huge thank you to our hometown truck stop. Ooh. Truck stops are at the very heartland so of the good. Midwest. This is Midwest Murder. And what is more Midwest than ranch and crispy hash browns and eggs over easy the crinkle fries the crinkle fries yeah we we big thank you to shots crossroads if you are ever in minot please stop through shots crossroads let them know that you appreciate their support of midwest murder and listen i love our truck stop because whether i'm there at 10 a.m or 3 p.m or 3 a.m i can get all six food groups (laughs) carbs carbs well group number six if you're at a truck stop is pie and i guess if if it's 
the seventh food group would be ranch. So we, you can get all that at Shots Crossroad any time of the day. So I, I love it, and I'm always going to get chicken strips with crispy, crinkle-cut fries. Got to do it. Bacon cheeseburger with bacon fries, cheeseburger. ranch, and gravy. Not Haystacks, mixed together. 88. Our truck stop can do online ordering. It's shotscrossroads.com, and you can even send your friends and family there a gift certificate. So again, we really do appreciate our local hometown truck stop and the heartland of the Midwest, Shots Crossroads, supporting Midwest Murder. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So today's episode of Midwest Murder will take us to Devil's Lake, North Dakota, or more specifically, the Spirit Lake Reservation. Settled on the eastern side of North Dakota, the lake itself is known as the perch capital of the world. How not many? when I'm fishing. <laughs> so, well, some of these guys can get like, well, the fish, not guys, but can like, like two pounds, uh, two pound perch. I mean, that could feed a family. The area is known for obviously the, the fishing as well as the hunting that the large lake and expansive open lands offer. The name Devil's Lake comes from an incorrect, incorrect translation of the early white explorers. They translated Minnewakan to mean bad spirit even though it means spirit water. So not only are we awesome, but we're also very disrespectful. That's great. Un- unsurprisingly. Yeah. So the Spirit Lake Reservation is comprised of approximately 405 square miles of beautiful lands, much like the rest of the plains, with some flat land and some rolling hills. And the reservation was established in 1867 between the U.S. government and the Sisseton Wapaton Sioux Bands. And as of 2014... There were 7,256 enrolled members, both the Eastern Sioux and the Cuthead Yankteni in the Spirit Lake tribe. Wow, nice, nice job on the Yankteni pronunciation. I, I, yes, thank you, mm-hmm. thank you. So the the year was 1983. Return of the Jedi opened in theaters. Wheel of Fortune began to, began its syndicated version. Which is important. It's huge because I always thought my dad would win Wheel of Fortune. Um, it never, it never happened, but there's still time. I thought that was, I thought that would actually pay for me to go to college. My dad would win <laughs> Wheel of Fortune, but here I am, a professional podcaster. That's, that's your, that's your dream. With no college. <laughs> so, oh man. Uh, so the final episode also, this is a big deal. The final episode of MASH broke our tiny little hearts and became the most watched finale of a TV series at 121.6 million viewers, which still holds the records today. Michael Jackson introduced the moonwalk for the first time and would also release the thriller video on MTV later that year, which still scares the pants off of me, like to this day. I, it's it's as, as bad as a horror movie. And believe it or not, there's more people here tonight that can moonwalk than saw the MASH finale. I- the uh, Sally Ride was also the first American woman in space on the Challenger. Super yes. cool. Bravo. The incredibly unsuccessful D.A.R.E. program was launched, making us think that we would be offered drugs way more often than we actually were. <laughs> we're not. The McNugget was introduced. And yes, I know we've covered that before, but it is worth mentioning again because it is the McNugget. So there was also the a lot of... the greatest invention of McDonald's, aside from fast food itself. It's the McNugget. It Game is. changer. It- and we were we were discussing the failures, the McFailures uh, today. A lot so, of McFailures. Yeah. So the McNugget is definitely a McWin. So. No, they tried to come up with vegetable nuggets once McDonald's did. That's a whole right. other story. But how about you just eat your broccoli? Right. Yeah. So uh, there was also a lot of civil unrest around the world in 1983. Military rule ended in Argentina. A new form of government began in Turkey. There was a bombing at the U.S. Senate. Nobody was uh, was killed. The Soviet Union was also shooting down planes. 
the Church Street bombing happened and just so many scary things. Uh, so it was just, I don't know, it was just icky that in that year. So we were all just, well, not we, I wasn't born yet, but it was, uh, it was just not cool. So perhaps the most important event that year was the birth of the first minivan. And here is looking at you, Dodge Caravan. That is Hard charging still today, the Dodge Caravan. Is it though? I don't know. I don't know. On August 28th, 1983, the body of Eddie Peltier was found on Highway 57 near Ski Jump Road. Just before 6 a.m. by a car driving by. The four people that found the unrecognizable body of Eddie had been at parties all night and were driving around. James Yankton, a BIA cop, initially thinking that it was his brother Quentin, cradled him and sobbed. What first appeared to be a hit and run would be anything but, and it would point out corruption, the abuse and misuse of power, and the flaws in our criminal justice system. Jerome Edward, or Eddie, Peltier was a tall, handsome, charismatic, and popular 24-year-old. He was married, and he and his wife had two children. He was an Army veteran, a police officer with the city of Devil's Lake, and had just been offered his dream job with North Dakota Highway Patrol. Richard LaFuente, 25, originally from Plainview, Texas, was visiting his half-sister on the Spirit Lake Reservation. His sister, Patty Big Track, told him that he might be receiving a distribution from the tribe. So in an effort to help move the process along, he thought it would be quicker if he just went there and asked for it in person. So he convinced his friend, John Perez, to ride with him from Texas to North Dakota. In the summer of 1983, they set off for the Fort Totten area and, you know, just also, on, you know, straight north on Highway 83. It was only supposed to be a, a week up north, but he was met with disappointment. There was no disappointment, or no distribution from the tribe, and uh, he'd be there for a little bit longer than he expected. So by that time, neither he nor John had any money. His El Camino, best car Sweet ever. Sweet car. My first car. Had broken down, and neither of them could find a job, even in nearby Devil's Lake. On is, August, this, is this concurrent with the body being found? They're, they just happened yeah, to be in they town? Were there. Yeah, okay. they were there. Yeah. So whenever a body goes missing, you might say, well, who's new in town? Right. Okay. Right. So on August 27th, 1983, there was a party at the Bernice Juarez house. Eddie Peltier was there, along with numerous others. The party got a little wild, turned into an all-nighter. Not raise your hand if that's happened to you. Nothing good happens after more, 2 a.m. More hands. It's... Hey, well, the only, thing, the only thing open after 2 a.m. are legs in hospitals. So Oof. it's... Zingo. I got and laughs. It's... Like, that is... This is genuine shock. I'm... You should you should really Jonah that out um, when you when we release. It's usually one, only me that laughs at Don's. Nobody dad jokes. ever laughs at my dad jokes ever, ever. Like I. This I is not I, a comedy true crime podcast. No, no. Now I'm embarrassed because people actually laughed at me. So, uh, anyway, my apologies. My apologies for being funny. Um, anyway, okay. So uh, the on the night of August 27th, 1983, there was a party at the Bernice Suarez house. Eddie Peltier was there, right? We've established that. So a group of young guys who were also there had been drinking, and just before the sun rose, they started fighting with Eddie. The fight fizzled, and then another started right away. But Eddie was able to get away and started running toward the highway. He wasn't alone, though, because that group of partying guys followed right behind him. And they, weren't gonna, they were not going to let him get away. So according to eyewitnesses, anything was a weapon. Hands, feet, a lead pipe, a bat, clubs, a metal pole, a stick, and even a set of nunchucks. 
they, nun- nunchucks. Yeah. They chased him to the highway and beat him with, with every weapon they could, they could find in Anything the house. Anything they could find. Eddie was beaten and left on the highway only to be driven over by a vehicle. Oh. His autopsy would show that that is what actually killed him, not the assault. Anyone who helped Eddie or said anything was threatened with meeting the same demise. Nothing other than Peltier's body and tire tracks that were on either side of him were found. So there was nothing questionable. According, so none of those, none of those weapons that they found. So nothing. according to eyewitnesses, he was beaten with a number of different weapons. But what killed him again is getting ran assault. over, getting left, or, me, yep, left for dead on the highway, and then getting ran over. Yes. Before sunup. So no, because nobody who's expecting to see a a body on the highway right. in the five o'clock in the morning. Right. Exactly. Unrecognizable again. You know, I mean, he hit, he was not in good shape. Nobody nobody knew who it was. Even his father wasn't sure who he was. So there were numerous people that were interviewed, obviously. And in those interviews, they talked about quite a few parties that had been going on that Saturday night. The party at Bernice's house was never mentioned. Not once. Eddie was seen at a couple of them. And at about 4 a.m., or around that time frame, he left a party at Celeste Herman's house to go to a party at his sister's. Quentin Yankton, Celeste's brother, gave him a ride, and that was normal. Investigators in the Peltier case suspected foul play, but they didn't have anything else to go on. That's all they could find. And after a month, the case was closed. Hit and run, done. Wow. That seems like nobody gave an S right there when I heard that. Oh, month later, done. We're moving on. Yep. In June of 1985. Two years later now. Two years later. Ricky LaFuente's sister, Patty Bigtrack, now Patty DeMars, started remembering some details from the night Eddie was killed. Just kind of out of nowhere. So James Yankton, the BIA agent who found the body of Eddie, the one who cradled the, the body thinking that it was his brother. And the BIA uh, Bureau, no, of Bureau of Indian Affairs. Bureau of Indian Affairs. Okay. Yep, yep, my apologies. He was now the person in charge at the local BIA office and the trusted guy for the FBI in the area. So if the FBI needed some information, Mr. Yankton, James Yankton, was their guy. So Yankton, having heard that Patty was remembering some details, uh, he interviewed her. And she first said that she remembered Ricky telling her that he'd been at Bernice's party. Then, the second time, she talked about a fight. And then, the third time, admitted to actually seeing the fight, along with a dozen other people. It's always strange when you see this happen, because... Are they remembering more details or are they feeling, is this person feeling guilty about something and doesn't want to spill it all right away? I've seen that with a lot of witnesses where what they said was all true. They just, the guilt was was soaking into them and getting them piece by piece. And it's always tough to tell which one you're getting with the witness. And it's no, I mean, it's no secret that I hop on the the victim soapbox every chance I get. Right. And so, you know, with victims, victims can be deemed incredible because, you know, the first time they're interviewed, you know, if if they're being interviewed numerous times, details will change a little bit, right. They might remember something that they forgot about before. Well, some people don't remember what they wore yesterday for clothes. let alone yeah. the events alone from the a, events. Yeah. a party at or, that uh, or ended at 5 a.m. Well, drinking some beer, whatever. Right. And, and right. So I, I'm the first one to, to hop on that soapbox, but this, this doesn't sit well with me just because it's, 
well, no, nothing happened. And then, well, no, he had been there. And then, oh, no, he, I, I totally saw the fight. Like it just, what, something feels icky. To simplistically dismiss the case in the beginning that right. it was a hit and run. Right. If there yeah. was evidence of violence and this being in the Midwest and this being a small town and everybody was, the fear was put into them not to speak about what happened, but people, rumors fly. Rumors fly. People and that's, talk. It's, yeah. People talk. So that what that's what gets us here. Yeah. So with that, with her remembering these things after a few interviews, the case was reopened that summer. Again, nearly two years after Eddie had been killed. It's never too late for justice. No, it's not. No, absolutely not. And and I mean, clearly you deserve that. So Patty would testify before a grand jury, along with Shirley Greywater, who was also known as Beasley, Eddie's brother, who was Fred Peltier, and then a guy named Billy Fox. The only one who testified to the details of the murder was Patty. The others had absolutely no idea. And remember, Patty is Richard LaFuente's sister, right? So she was the only one that could talk about the details of the murder. Everybody else was like, no, wait, we have no idea. So even so, even with that, with only one testimony, one damning testimony, 11, 11, individuals were indicted for their roles in Eddie Peltier's murder. 11. So it goes from zero to 60, well, zero to 11, it, it, like that. So Richard LaFuente, John Perez, Dwayne Charbonneau, Roger Charbonneau, Leonard Fox, Lauren Graybear, Tim, Tim Longy Jr., Maynard Dunn, his brother Terry Dunn, Jesse Kavanaugh, and his brother Paul Kavanaugh. Each defendant was charged with first-degree murder and assault resulting in serious bodily injury. Wow. Lauren Graybear was charged with perjury and three counts of witness tampering. Jesse Kavanaugh was charged with five counts of witness tampering. Richard LaFuente was charged with one count of witness tampering. John Perez was charged with one count of witness tampering. And Leonard Fox was charged with perjury. And the witness tampering stems from threatening the witnesses sure. not yeah. to testify as to whatever. what happened. Yeah. Yep. And you've got yep. no physical evidence, just essentially one foggy, maybe foggy one. testimony. One testimony. Wow. That was, that, that had changed. Right. You know, multiple times. So, oh, I mean, we're talking 11 people. So things move along. They start building their case. And once they get to trial, not much went well for those 11 defendants. So the trial had been, been moved to the Fargo area. So if you're familiar with North Dakota, Devil's Lake is, you know, on the eastern side, you know, middle eastern area, you know. So the closest place would be Grand Forks, you know, because federal, because again, you know, it's on the, it's on the reservation, so it's federal. Right. So... The closest place, because at that time in 1983, uh, there would be, you know, Minot, Bismarck, uh, Grand Forks, Fargo. They, they all had federal courthouses, right? So the closest place to Devil's Lake would be the Grand Forks courthouse. Prosecutors claimed that that one was not big enough. Maybe it wasn't. So it might not have been. And that's fine. But now what's happening is the 11 Native American defendants were now facing an all-white jury. I think we can all see how that would work. I don't jump to assumptions in these things. No, I did. Sorry. The the judge was, but here's, okay, well, maybe, maybe I did because I knew the story, but the judge was the same judge that presided over Leonard Peltier's trial in 1977. If you're not familiar with Leonard Peltier, 
who was also a cousin of Eddie's. He's an American activist for Native American rights. Leonard was sentenced to two life sentences for the murders of two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. Wow. So that, I don't know this story, but that particular case I remember hearing about as a child in the 80s. And and my uncle would talk about it was technically, and I'm using air quotes here, the last Indian uprising and that was that's what he's referencing right here. So that's the cousin of this man who was murdered, was and murdered. now the yeah. judge who sentenced him is presiding over. Right. This. Okay. Right. And I mean, look it up. It's a it's a very interesting yeah. case, and probably one we might we might cover because it is very interesting. And and why I bring that up is that the judge in that in the case for Leonard Peltier, so the same judge that was now going to hear and preside over the the eleven um, the eleven defendants. He was thought to have made some very questionable decisions. So, and not, um, definitely not good. So, and it was, it it caused a lot of issues for Leonard Peltier. And, um, it seemed like it would cause some issues for the people who are being charged for. Okay. So the trial lasted for six weeks. There was no physical evidence presented that would tie any of the defendants to the murder. No physical evidence, which is possible. it's you possible know, to get a conviction without physical evidence. Absolutely, there there are many cases that that are you know are are, are based on circumstantial evidence, right? I mean, if you look at um, episode three with Gina North, right? She was her remains were never found. You know, it was all circumstantial or majority circumstantial. So it's not it's not like that doesn't happen. But what makes that worse is the testimonies given by the witnesses were so inconsistent. So in in fact the the physical evidence that was presented was almost, it was almost the opposite for it. It it almost made the case for the the defense. So very weird things, things just weren't adding up because you know, the, the tire marks found near Eddie's body uh, didn't match the El Camino tires, neither the ones that were on the vehicle nor the spares. And they're trying to say, this is the vehicle that ran Eddie over in, in the case. And so here's, and here's the interesting part. I'm, I'm all about science. So autopsies, forensic science in this case, yeah, very, very yeah, important, yeah, yeah, very important. So his body, Eddie's Eddie's body, didn't even show that he'd suffered the beating that they'd claimed. So the stories of the witnesses were so inconsistent that you know with with this and and that he had he had suffered this horrible beating with all of these these weapons, weapons, tools, Nunchucks, everything, chains, yeah, everything. His body showed none of that. That he he was killed by that by the auto. So just it's just not making sense. So the defense attorneys were getting frustrated. I can see why. With those inconsistent uh, witness testimonies, even accused one of them that her memory would improve after each time she spoke to the BIA agent James Yankton. Right. So they're trying to build their case and, and trying to show that everything just didn't add up. What would also be presented, Eddie's blood alcohol level was 0.24. So the legal limit for a DUI is 0.08. I've had two beers tonight. I'm probably a 0.04. Right. So, I mean, that's a 0.24. That's a lot. Uh, it's, that's a lot of booze. So the defense used that and said, okay. How did this guy, this trained police officer, 
at a point two four managed to fight against this group of eleven, 11 men people yeah accused of uh, it, it, like they were accused of beating him and if for as long as they'd claimed so I, i'm sorry that's it that doesn't add up for me it's it so the defense tried to show that and it seems like a worthy defense effort, realistically, sure. uh, well, if that's, if that's, that's what you're their, putting. That's their job, yeah. right? So the the other interesting part is that the 11, the 11 defendants didn't turn on one another at all. So they weren't all friends. Some didn't even know one another, but it might be, you know, passing in the street, might know who they are. So not a lot of connections, I guess, if you will. So in thinking, too, at, at a party, these weren't 11 people that were at this party hanging out together as a group. Somehow, right. they just came to converge on this one hey, man, according according to the story. Yes. Yep. That's all. I don't know you from Joe. We're partying together. It's about 5 a.m. Should we should we murder someone? That seems like a good idea. Yeah. It, it's, so it's, it's it just, doesn't it's add just up. weird. It's, yeah. So not one rolled on, on another. And none of them accepted the prosecution's offers for a lesser sentence. So, all right, buddies, and, and maybe even within the culture, it might be, nope, we don't do that. We're not going to turn on someone. It's just not what we do. But if I didn't know anything about that, if I didn't know anything about the thing, I'm not going to roll on somebody and say that somebody else did just to get a lesser sentence, right? I mean, it's, well, a lot of people you know, would. A lot of people would, but, but that was, but. Right. So a lot of people would. And in this instance, and again, to, to be clear, this is a prosecutor offering a lesser sentence if you just admit that you were guilty and none or of just or just give some shit on somebody else. Right. That's it. That's Flip on someone or admit you were guilty right. and you can yep. walk away or That's you it. can have a lesser sentence. All 11. No. Code right. of silence. None. We didn't do this. All so right? it, it's so it's so odd that even one of the prosecutors. It's powerful. Yeah, even one of the prosecutors said this is kind of weird. Like this is this isn't how this to- normally works. In the prosecution's closing arguments, this this stuck out to me when I was reading the court documents. They told the jury that it quote was an all or nothing case, all guilty or all not guilty. End quote. It it just it it just seems that you know I mean it's it's all or nothing. That guy I mean somebody just put him one witness at first put them there, and then you know then the others yep. Yeah, Yep, totally. That guy was there, right? I mean, just out of eleven people, it just seems weird. So, two people all guilty, okay, but eleven? I don't know. It's it. That's a lot of pressure on a jury, in in my opinion, which is not a legal opinion at all. So, on May twenty first, nineteen eighty six, the jury returned with their verdicts. I'm sure you can all see where this is going. Richard Lafuente was guilty of first degree murder. Maynard Dunn was guilty of assault resulting in serious bodily injury. The remaining nine defendants were found guilty of second-degree murder. Wow. Lauren Graybear was also found guilty of witness tampering and perjury. John Perez and Jesse Cavanaugh were also found guilty of witness tampering. And Leonard Fox was found guilty of perjury. One of the defense attorneys, David Thompson, said, if it had been 11 young white kids, the case would have never been prosecuted. Quote. Not with that yeah. evidence. Quote. Yeah. Wow. So in 1987, now, you know, this is a year later, a new attorney for Ricky LaFuente had started to hear that stories were changing. So Beasley, if you remember, Shirley Graywater, she was that first one uh, that that testified. She was willing to talk. And so a team of five attorneys drove to Fort Totten to listen to her story. And according to Graywater, James Yankton and another officer threatened to take away her children 
in addition to a perjury charge. So not only would they take away her children, but she would get 10 years for this perjury charge. So she also claimed that she was given information so that her testimony would be consistent with others. And so, you know, coached and and all of that. She's suggesting she was pressured into making certain statements here. Right. Is what I'm hearing. Okay. So put yourself in those shoes. And this is allegedly according to her. Uh, Yeah, according to her. So put yourself in those shoes. If, If that was true, you know, how that worked out, and that's you, and somebody said... You're going to say this or I'm taking away your kids. You can't even chance it. What are you going to what are you going to do? You feel so, powerless in a lot in, oh, the, in that for scenario. For sure, for sure. I mean anybody would. This is a federal a federal agent. Right. Yeah. Yep. So once she started talking, others followed. And they finally said what had been talked about for years. All of it was a lie, the entire story. So the fact that these people followed Eddie Peltier to the highway, beat the hell out of him, and then Richard LaFuente ran him over. All of it was a lie. And the interesting part, one of the one of the claims was that after they had beat him, they had they had brought Eddie, who was still with us, to his knees, and that's when he was ran over. Right. So again bringing that back to the autopsy his legs weren't broken nothing was nothing added up the forensics did the, not add they up did not with add up the to witness that. claims right so with all of that that new evidence would bring the appeal of US versus Gray Bear to the US Court of Appeals for the 8th circuit and in 1987 so later that year they threw up the cases for six of the defendants for insufficient evidence so just six Right? Six of the eleven here. Okay. So we're 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 getting there. Right? Progress. So they also ordered new trials for Richard LaFuente, John Perez, and three of the other defendants that had been charged with perjury and witness tampering. They ruled that trying them all together in combination with the murder charges and the lesser charges, so remember the perjury, the witness tampering, all of those things, sure. was unfair. But because it was a basically a tied vote which I, I still have yet to understand how that works because that's the whole reason why all the way down to your city council, it's odd numbers so that you can't actually have a tie. But that's how it worked. So because of that, there would be no new trials for the remaining five defendants. What? So a judge in the circuit court called the decision a gross miscarriage of justice. That's so it. some, some BS, oh, it's a tie. We can't figure out what Sorry. to do. These people have to rot in jail. It's the worst justice system. Well, like I said, flaws. I, and I, I mean, I, I, a flaw doesn't, you know, a flaw is like a hole in your pants. Just, like it's, it, there's, there's, this is like much bigger. I mean, it, it's, it's so way aggravating than a flaw. to see and, potentially innocent people right, sitting behind right. bars and now they For maybe what? have a chance really at justice. But and no, it's a sorry, technicality. It's kind of crappy. So that doesn't work. Someone it, didn't it cast a vote. It's a tie. Sorry. Yeah. What? So, Richard LaFuente would continue to serve his life sentence, and John Perez would serve his 20, and that's that. But that also wouldn't be the only time that LaFuente was given the opportunity for another trial. And it also wouldn't be the only time that the decision to do so was overturned. So, in 1992, people were still talking, right? This is a big deal. And there's still no justice. People are still talking about this today. Today. Yes, exactly. It's, yeah. So there was evidence that witnesses had been paid, 
documents were kept from the defense and so much abuse of power. So with that, the Eighth Circuit, yet again, granted, uh, you know, another another hearing. So this time it was an evidentiary hearing for Richard LaFuente and John Perez's convictions. So over four days, there were 45 witnesses that testified. And what did we have in the first trial? Like three and only like, one of them? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, it, the grand jury trial had four. Like, yeah. come on. And that one testimony got 11 people. It's So 45 witnesses. We should lock that up tight, right? Eddie had been seen that night wearing white painter's pants, but yet was found in denim jeans. So this is sticking out in people's minds. They're, they're, they're talking about this, right? Cause something is just odd. So if put yourself in these shoes, if you're going to beat the shit out of somebody, are you going to tell him to change his pants first? I mean, you know, probably not. Yeah, that doesn't, you that's, know, that's the strangest it detail. Is, it is the so strangest the, detail. And it's like, I can't not mention it. Well, in white painter's pants, if, if I'm hanging out at a party and my, one of my buddies is wearing white painter's pants, that I remember that it's, right. it, it's, it's, it's uncommon. Sure. Yeah. It, it just mean, is. Right now, I don't know what color pants you're wearing. I mean, it's, it. There's not a person with white pants with in white, the house right. tonight. So, okay. So it's, it's just, it's odd. It's something, it's not odd, but it's just something that sticks out in your mind, right? If anybody's, if everybody's wearing denim jeans, like they, okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it, you know, kind of blend in. So James and Quentin Yankton, had been seen, and this is these details are starting to come out, that they had been seen with Eddie the night and the morning of those parties. So Gladys Peltier, Eddie's mom, testified that her and her husband, who was a former BIA officer at the, the, the place that Eddie's body was found, crawled around on their hands and knees looking for evidence. And they found some. It included a bloody piece of carpet and a beer box that had a smear of blood on it. This is big, right? This is a break. It's a breakthrough. They turned it into Yankton, the BIA agent, but it was never found in the evidence. So we got missing evidence now. Missing evidence. And he claimed, he testified, that he turned it over to his superior, and that was that. So a jail trustee testified. and for uh, So a trustee in the jail is a, basically an inmate who has proven himself, right? So it might be the one that you see shoveling the snow that might be mowing the lawn. So it's it's basically a, a trusted worker. They've earned you know, some added privileges. Yep, yep. Okay. And they're serving sentence, right? So they're serving their time. So a jail trustee testified that he was awoken that morning and ordered to clean Yankton's vehicle. Then... Two other inmates, so this trustee and another inmate were supposedly, according to his testimony, were taken out to that highway and told to look for a wallet and glasses. What? Never found. So and, and this, this is all good information, right? It's a, it's a lot that doesn't necessarily look good for uh, people involved with this case. If you're no. if you, Quentin Yankton, again, he's the one who discovered, according to the story, no, James Yankton. James Yankton. Okay, yep. James discovered yep. the body. Yep. And he's thinking the, that it was his brother, Quentin. Right. And he was the BIA agent. Yep. So one of the people who and was investigating. And now it. you've got a trustee that said, "Hey, I was asked to clean his vehicle the, mm-hmm. shortly after the murder." Totally makes sense. So great information. It's hopeful. Right? A new trial was ordered for both La Fuente and Perez. Okay, we're moving forward. Except that decision was then overturned a year later. Who has the power to overturn? Wow. Okay. Yeah, they can keep they can keep pushing. 
So time is marching on. There's still no justice or there's air quote justice. And in 1999, John Perez was paroled. He was free. That was it. Done. So LaFuente is still serving his time and approximately every two years would go before the parole board. All he, all he would need to do is admit remorse and that he was a changed man and he'd likely be go, you know, go back home. He refused. And because by doing so that would admit he would, he would be admitting that he was guilty in that case. And, And he, he said there was absolutely no way that he was going to do that. I mean, not going to. So even this is the, this is the kicker for me. So even Eddie's family believed that the wrong man was in prison. So Eddie's family who of course, you know, during the, during the trial, they're hearing this and they're like, that's the guy. But then the more that these things came out, the more these details came out, it was the exact opposite. And Eddie's mom prior to her passing sent a video to the parole board pleading with them to set him free that this was not the guy. They all feel that way. Eddie's sister had was fighting for his freedom for, you know, LaFuente's freedom. So the person convicted of their son, brother, family members murder. I mean, they're pleading for his release and, and she claimed that she knew who really killed him. It seems like one of those things that, Everybody in the community knows, knows sort of that you've heard it. It's a rumor. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Right. You hear whispers in the bar. You hear them around campfires at mm-hmm. late night parties. And if, I don't know, I don't, if somebody with power is involved here, they're working really hard to, to hide things. really hard. And, I mean, and, and the evidence the going, the evidence worse. going missing is, is, is so, so, so suspect. Well, so that's, sus. that's, that's concrete, right? I mean, that it was there. It's not, you know, so what happened to it and why wasn't that, why wasn't that brought up later? So, so what actually happened that night? All of the fingers, all of the gossip, all of the talk seemed to point back to one of the most powerful families on the reservation and someone who has had his hand in the case since the very beginning, not the people convicted. Andrea Peltier, Eddie's sister, the one that had been fighting for LaFuente's release, brought up again numerous times what Eddie was found in because this is one thing that does not add up. Again, the pants. So Andrea was one of the last people to see her brother alive as he left his sister's party around 4 a.m. or after. She also brought up that he was wearing white painter pants. So when she and her father went to identify his body, he was, in fact, wearing denim jeans. She claimed that they were way too long for him and that there was an orange string sewn into the bottom. Since she used to iron his clothes, she knew his appearance meant so much to him and he wouldn't wear something like that, right? If your family's going to know what you're, what you're like, what, what you're wearing, especially if you're that close. So this is one of those things that was never solved. It was never a, it, it's just, it's one of those details that is, it's a head scratcher, right? It well, just nobody, does not make any sense. It just feels sense. like nobody wanted to solve it. Well, yeah, right. right. At, yeah. I mean, if it's, nope, absolutely hit and run completely. And then, you know, and then nothing. So Andrea, the sister of Eddie, told a reporter that in 1990, Celeste, the sister of James and Quentin Yankton, drunkenly walked into her house one evening and told her how sorry she was for hitting him in the head when Eddie and one of her brothers were fighting. So she's like, what, what are you talking, my brother? Like, what are you talking about? 
And that's not the only time. So a similar story was actually told at the evidentiary hearing as well. Um, another guy in the community it had had the same thing. So this Celeste goes up to him. They're sitting around, you know, kind of a, a campfire. They're chit-chatting and they're drinking and having fun. And Celeste goes over to him, sits on his lap and says, you know, I'm I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry I hit your brother or hit your, uh, it's a family member, I believe, in, in the head with a bottle. You know, so now more details are coming out, but yet nothing comes of it. So now remember, Celeste is the sister of James and Quentin Yankton. None of those details seem to matter. And so many people believed in Richard LaFuente's innocence. So with all of those details, all of them, that attracted the assistance of the Innocence Project of, of Minnesota. I mean, so when those, when those Innocence Projects, when, when they get involved, you know shit's real, right? Like it's, it's, it's not just rumors in the community. It, something is not adding up and there has been an injustice for more than more than just the victim, right? Of course. So well, at, the, at that at that point, the family is 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 not getting no, they're not the getting justice the justice. Either. None of it. I it right. I mean, nobody will ever get closure, right? I, I can't imagine. I'm I've not been in that position, but I don't think a family member would or a family would get closure, regardless. You know, if if justice was served, it doesn't bring their person back. It doesn't bring their family member back. But at least there would be some comfort knowing that it was handled and it was handled the way it was supposed to be. So finally, in 2014, Richard LaFuente was a free man. He served 28 years in federal prison. After five years, the the rule or the law is that uh, a person can apply for a presidential pardon, but that has not been granted yet at this time. And to this day, he resides in Texas. Wow. So he served 28 years in federal prison for a crime. For he a crime still he, claims he, his innocence to not commit. And the, most the, the entire community says he didn't commit. So a lot of, a lot of big questions remain, obviously, right? I mean, we're all scratching our heads here. I've told this story now more than once and I'm still scratching my head. You know, what was the motive that was never discussed? It was never discussed. So, but the motive would also depend on who actually killed him, right? Which, okay, so if, if LaFuente had, if LaFuente did, why? why? What, what did he have to gain from <laughs> killing Eddie Peltier? Right, exactly. That's always the question in these cases when it's not clear what, who had something to gain or was it a stupid accident, right? Right. Uh, it, yep. You know, the way it was portrayed, mm, that was no accident. No. So Eddie was a trained police officer. So was it somebody that he had dealt with, right? Are we missing? Am I zeroing in? I know what I'm doing here. Am I zeroing in on the, on the information, right? So was it somebody that, that he had dealt with in the past? None of that ever came up, ever. Was it actually who the Peltier family suspected? So the, you know, the, the Yankton family and, and because, I mean, we, we don't know that. That's the, that's the rumor and that's, that's all it is at this point. So is there any truth to the story about Celeste, you know, going, you know, telling, Peltier sister, you know, saying something to the, the, the guy at the party. We don't, we don't know those things, but what if it, what if that was the case, right? What if that was this, there's this major cover up and they got away with it? Well, it's possible if they were it, in it control is. of the evidence. Right. Yep. Unquestionably. And one of the other things that, that popped up in my head was so, did he actually get a ride from Quentin Yankton? So going back to the original story or the, the the first part of the story is, you know, he was seen leaving this fake party 
and he was given a ride by Quentin Yankton. Why throw that in there? Why throw that detail in there if he didn't have a part of it? And if that were the case, why? Why was the story that James Yankton thought that the body was that of his brother, not Eddie Peltier? You know, so is 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 this something where, you know, his brother had something to do with it? And then because he's in a position of power, did he cover it up because he could could do that? And, and I'm not I, I know it sounds like I'm speculating. I'm I'm throwing I'm I'm asking these questions on, on as far as like what could have happened, right? How who, like you said, who would gain something from from this murder, from from getting rid of this guy who was obviously not going to be with Devil's Lake PD anymore. He was going to the, the highway patrol. It just does not make sense. So I don't think we'll ever know what actually happened that night. It has been far too long. There have been so many stories, some gossip, some some true, maybe some not. And there have obviously been some very, very good cover-ups uh, with whatever happened, whoever is responsible. So with this story, obviously it's it's caught a lot of um, got a lot of attention. We've been we've been contacted about the story numerous times. There's also been a a movie that's that's being crowdfunded, you know, to be released. I believe it's still they're still working on that. His sister Eddie Peltier's sister Andrea worked so hard to get that no to find the truth, right? And she worked so hard, worked tirelessly, and sadly. She passed away in August of 2020, so just this past August. And the part that that really got me was in in reading the um, the program for her funeral. You know, just reading through it just to kind of see what happened, all that stuff. The the part that that got me was honorary pallbearers Paul included Dwayne Charbonneau Sr., Roger Charbonneau, Maynard Dunn, Terry Dunn, Paul Cavanaugh. Jesse Kavanaugh, Lauren Graybear, Leonard Fox, Tim Longy, Richard LaFuente, and John Perez. And that's my goosebumps moment. Wow. Yeah. It's it's so sad. The people and, and, who were, according to the law, guilty of killing her brother. She so, honored yeah. them as pallbearers when she passed away. Right. You, you're not going to the grave doing that if... If these people had something to do with mm-hmm. your brother's death. And they all, they, she knew it and they, they knew it. Very sad. Very sad. So resources for this, for this, uh, case, court documents, definitely uh, the Fargo Forum, Texas Monthly, and, uh, definitely the Innocence Project of Minnesota. Well, it's, 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 it is, it's, it's always icky when you feel like there's no justice in the end and these these cases never make a person feel good but in this one it's just like come on there's nothing I, yeah i feel i feel like i've let everybody down because there's no wrap up to this but so if i'm feeling like that telling this story I, I mean how does that you know how does the family feel right there's there's still no justice none and that that folks is midwest murder special thank you again to tonight's venue fatfish brewing a big thank you to cj win author of wilder intentions for writing the intro to midwest murder our music composer eric michael anderson with doctors eric and diana anderson and of course a huge thank you to our amazing hometown sponsor shots crossroads uh, truck stops really at the heart of what is uh, what makes the midwest 
awesome. Have coffee, have pie, 3 a.m., 10 a.m., you can get anything on the menu. It's how, how much ranch do they make a day? So fun fact about Shots Crossroads, and, and this is everybody in the Midwest, give yourself a pat on the back here for ranch consumption. We're, we're doing this, you guys. Eight gallons of ranch a day that Shots Crossroad makes. A day. A day. So okay. if you make it to Minot, let's see if we can make them make 10. Right, like let's let's really solidify our Midwestern Push jokes, them. right? Yeah. No, no order of food anywhere in the Midwest is complete without a side of oh, ranch. Oh, careful! That's um, those are fighting words. <laughs> careful. So big careful. thank you again, Shots Crossroads. Please do rate, review, subscribe to Midwest Murder on iTunes. We appreciate you guys. Later. Thank you.